Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are traveling to Lake Superior, specifically Isle Royale, where we are going to talk to Dr. Sarah Hoy about her work on wolf-moose interactions and the impacts that has on plants. If you've taken an ecology class, either in high school or as an undergrad, you might have encountered this idea of top-down ecosystem dynamics, and that's exactly what we're going to discuss today. The point of this conversation really is that we need large predators. I understand that many people fear them, but we fear them at a cost of really the planet, as you're going to hear. I don't want to steal any of our thunder. This is a really interesting and important conversation to be had. But before I get to that, I just want to say conversations like this can't happen unless you support podcasts like In Defense of Plants. There are a lot of great ways to do that, and one of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's some great kickbacks for supporting it, but the best of which means you'll keep the show up and running week to week. And I thank everyone that's kicked in thus far. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Sarah Hoy. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Sarah Hoy, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but for those that aren't aware of your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So I'm Sarah Hoy. I'm a research assistant professor at the University of Michigan, uh, Michigan Technological University um, that's based in Houghton in, in the northern part of Michigan. And for the last few years, most of my research has focused on understanding the uh, ecosystem of Isle Royale, specifically the relationship between monitoring the wolf population and the moose population on the island. And it's part of a um, very long-term study that's been going since the 1950s up, up until the present day. So it's very cool to be part of that, that long-running project. Nice. I'm hoping that some of the ecologists in the room are familiar, at least with the concept of what you study and the system you've you've entered into. But I'm curious where this all began for you. I mean, were you just a biology kid, nature kid growing up, or is this something you kind of stumbled into later on in life? No, I've always uh, spent a lot of my time outdoors since being a little kid. You know, we only really came inside when it was raining and, <laughs> and things like that. You know, the weather was too bad. Um and then, yeah, I, I took a zoology degree and really enjoyed that. And that just really, um, I briefly considered being an, an engineer, a mechanical engineer, but uh, it didn't seem very appealing when I learned more about it. So I switched to, to zoology um, and, yeah, I've never regretted that decision and, and I've always kind of strived to to spend as much time as I, I can outside and, and watching and viewing different animal species. Um, yeah, but from a scientific perspective and also just for enjoyment as well. Right on. And and with all of that, I mean, you've still managed to maintain a heavy mathematical focus in your work. I mean, you haven't gotten rid of all of the, the trappings of engineering. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, it was kind of funny because my both my dad and my brother are mechanical engineers and I switched to zoology and my dad was like, oh, you should stay with it, <laughs> stay with maths. And it's like, I do <laughs> statistical analysis pretty much uh, all the time. So yeah, no, nice. still very much doing analysis. 
Nice. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go in zoology. There's a lot of ways you can make your mark in the scientific world. I mean, how did you start getting into sort of predator-prey ecological dynamics? Where did that all kind of come from? Yeah, so I guess there's kind of two main themes to most of my research. One is kind of like understanding population ecology, which is essentially understanding why the number of animals in a population goes down from up or down from year to year. Is it because of disease? How much food is available? Weather, climate change, things like that. And then the other aspect is really um, animal behavior, specifically what animals decide to eat. Hmm. And I guess, you know, I think studying foraging behavior, if you're interested in animals, is super important because it's, you know, it's the primary activity of any animal species. It's really vital for understanding how species select habitat, how they interact with other species, predicting how wildlife are going to respond to changes in the environment, and also for understanding like community dynamics. And I guess from a more personal perspective, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to eat, you know, <laughs> what am I going to have for dinner? You know, I like trying different foods, going out to different restaurants and things like that. And so, you know, and it's one of the things I look forward to when I go and travel places, What you know, because uh, I've worked overseas in different places. And so, you know, and I also like cooking for friends and family and, and things like that. So I'm really not that surprised that I've ended up studying <laughs> foraging behavior. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, you know, animals exhibit really strong preferences for certain types of food, mm -hmm. but those decisions about what to eat can be really importantly influenced by changes in the environment, such as changes in the relative abundance and quality of different food types, how much competition there is for food, how many predators are around. Uh. And I guess more than that, I'm also interested in studying, well, you know, what are the consequences of those foraging decisions, both for the per, from the perspective of the animal that's you know making the decisions about what they're going to eat and also what are the consequences for the animals or plant species that are being eaten as well and i suppose i kind of first got interested in foraging behavior from an academic perspective during my master's degree um i was studying the foraging behavior of the hispanolonan selenodon Mm. which is very difficult to say. It's um, <laughs> a really unique endangered mammal species. It's only found in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It's kind of a species that went off on its own evolutionary tangent and, and no other creatures kind of followed it. So it really it's been around uh, since about the time of the dinosaurs, the Whoa. species. So it's kind of really uh, weird and unique. And I heard about their existence and just really wanted to learn whatever I could about them. And and part of that was kind of trying to understand, you know, what habitats it spent its time foraging in. And then following on from that, I did my PhD studying northern goshawks. And a big chunk of that time was spent figuring out, well, what is this goshawk population eating? <laughs> How is that impacting the the species that it's eating, as, you know, as well? Um, and so that's kind of really when I, I got more involved in the kind of predator-prey side of things. And then I kind of continued that that theme during my postdoc, um, which was studying the diet of wolves in Isle Royale and also in Yellowstone National Park. Nice. And then most recently kind of studying the foraging behavior of moose as well in, on Isle Royale. Excellent. Yeah. That really. was maybe more information. No, that's <laughs> awesome. I love that. Again, this is what makes podcast special is you get to really see behind the science what 
brought you to this sort of stuff. And I love that there's like a degree of empathy. Like I love to eat. I love to figure out where to eat. Let's, you know, use some of that empathy to look at our, our fellow organisms and say, hey, that drive is there, right? Because I, I would say, other than getting your genes into the next generation, fueling that venture is probably one of the biggest imperatives of any organism. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just so fundamental. And we, you know, we have a good understanding of what a lot of species kind of eat in terms of like, yeah, they eat this species or that species. But we have quite a poor understanding of like, well, what changes those decisions? What makes the animal change mm. from eating this species to that species? Can it change? You know, and, and I think it's especially important to kind of understand that as, you know, the climate's changing and species are moving around and as landscapes are changing because of differences in human usage and things like that. So um, that, yeah, it's just kind of something that's really kind of fascinating to me. Definitely. And you've managed to insert yourself into some amazing projects as you kind of hinted at there, but Isle Royal, it's come up a couple of times already in this conversation. And if people aren't familiar with it, it is a fascinating case study and a lot of different ecological principles. But tell us a little bit about where is this and why is this such an important place for ecological study? So Isle Royal is um, an uh, archipelago um, and also a U.S. national park. It's situated, it's technically part of Michigan. It's situated in Lake Superior. Um, so kind of right on the border between um, North America, uh, the USA and Canada. The climate there, the winters are very deep snow <laughs> um, and, and can be kind of cold, but not as cold as certain parts of the US. So <laughs> minus 10 is usually about as cold as it gets in the wintertime, whereas oh. I know other places are down to minus 40. So we get a lot of snow, but temperature wise, it's not quite that brutal. But the summers are also kind of cooler and and relatively short so we probably have snow for about six months of the year so it's a it's a great place to experience different seasons um (laughs) from a scientific perspective Isle Royale is great for a couple of reasons so there's been a really long-term study of both the wolf population and the moose population um, and how those two species interact and that's been going since the 1950s um, so for over 60 years, um, it's it's a great place to study wildlife species because there's relatively little human interference. Mm. So it's a designated wilderness area. Um, none of the, 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 the animal species are hunting, hunted. There's fishing allowed, but there's no kind of hunting allowed. And the forest hasn't been harvested for over 100 years. Wow. And so you kind of have like this, you know, there's definitely been human usage. There's mining there, people vacation there, things like that in the past, but nothing kind of re- in the most recent decades. And that's kind of fairly rare. And so that that kind of makes it a great place to see what happens when humans aren't, aren't modifying the landscape or impacting the animal species a whole lot. Um, it's also a simpler ecosystem, so there's fewer species on the island compared to the mainland. Mm. So if you're trying to un- understand interactions in a communities, there's a lot of there's fewer interrelationships that you have to try and figure out. So that makes my life a little <laughs> bit easier. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing that makes it kind of a distinctive place to work, especially from the perspective of a population ecologist that studies animals, is 
that it's very difficult for animals to move between the island and the mainland. So we know that any changes in the number of animals on the island probably isn't due to large numbers of animals leaving or, or, or coming from the mainland. So it's kind of a naturally fairly contained uh, study system, which makes it, and it's a bit simpler to study as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, ecological data by its very nature, noisy as all hell, but if you can eliminate <laughs> some of that noise, that's excellent. And yeah, I, I could imagine that from a population ecologist interested in foraging and feeding behavior of animals, the more you can kind of remove the adjustments they have to make for the human impacts, the the, the more raw, I guess, it, it becomes. Like, what really was the baseline? And then how can we look at that and use that to look at, okay, what happens when you throw a lot of humanity into the mix? Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely a good um, counterpoint. And I think because the populations have been studied for such a long time, any new results or findings that you have you've got a lot of context to be able to place them in, which is, I think, one of the great things about long-term studies. Big time. And so what originally brought you to even writing proposals to study this on the island? Was it the moose, the wolves, the forest? Like, what Was there a center point or was it all of it? To be like 100% honest, yeah. I had been studying the recovery of northern goshawks in the UK and how their recovery had like impacted other species. Um, and so I was finishing my PhD and was like, oh, I need to look for a job now. <laughs> and so I Googled predator prey postdoc and this uh, uh, position came up and it was comparing like the Isle Royale and the Yellowstone systems. And I was mm. like, wow, this would be like my dream job. I'm probably not going to get it. And I've never been to America before, but, <laughs> you know, if it's you know, I might as well, you know give it a try. And, and then, um, yeah, within a month, I, I moved out to America to start that, that wow. job. And the people that I get to work with are really fantastic. Two of the people that have led the Aurora Wolf Moose Project, Rolf Peterson and John Bustich, they're really amazing scientists and, and have been fantastic mentors to me as well. So it's, um, yeah, just really been, you know, the, the uh, dream job. Uh, and and the island's a very special place as well. So it was cool to come and work in a place where I'd read all these papers about and to kind of put all the things together as well. I love it. It's honest. I mean, that's that's how so much of this ends up working out, right? Is is opportunities yeah. arise, you get to take a shot, sometimes it hits, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think um I'd emailed and kind of asked a lot of questions like you know how much freedom am I going to have to be able to pursue different ideas because I, I kind of studied the topic a lot of the topics similar during my PhD and so it was really cool to be able to kind of then think okay well I've looked at this in one study system how does that translate to like other predator systems where they've recovered like in Yellowstone or Isle Royale yeah and things like that as well so that was kind of really cool yeah and so my family just jokes that i swapped feathery things for furry things <laughs> it's all linked in an evolutionary <laughs> context right i mean feathers fur it's all made of the same stuff i guess <laughs> yeah they, they mostly have claws still so yeah. yeah there you go so you you've mentioned the comparison here between uh, Isle Royale and Yellowstone. And that's an interesting comparison to make because on surface value, what does an archipelago in the largest and deepest of the Great Lakes have to do with 
uh, a landlocked caldera in the Rockies? Like, how is there a comparison there? And why is there a comparison between the organisms you study? Yeah, I mean, so it was mostly comparing wolf predation on moose in Isle Royale with wolf predation on elk in Yellowstone. I mean, there are definitely a lot of differences. The Yellowstone system is way more complicated. You know, uh, wolves, there aren't just wolves, there are cougars, there are bears. that also prey on elk as well. So you've got multi-predator Wolves are also preying on, you know, they've got a variety of different um, deer species that they can prey on. So like elk, there are moose there. There's also different deer species, pronghorn, bighorn sheep, you know, <laughs> name it. They've, yeah. they've got a lot going on over there. So it, it really was kind of a, a, a different system. But a lot of the types of data that have been collected because were very similar. And so that facilitated being able to do a comparison. So I was kind of really interested in this idea that predators selectively kill older individuals mm. and take out the old and the sick. And that was something I'd looked at in my PhD on goshawks. And so I was like, is that the same for wolves? And is it the same for wolves in both systems? And what changes that behavior, you know, if old animals get really rare in the population, do they start to behave differently? So um, moose are also like a bigger species, over 800 pounds compared. And so they're bigger than elk. So potentially they're more difficult for wolves to take down. Mm -hmm. But then you've got moose as largely solitary animals, whereas elk are in herds. So like, how does that, you know, are they doing the same thing? Uh, elk probably run away, whereas moose kind of stand their ground. So it was just interesting to me, like, to see if those patterns were going to be the same. And it turned out that they're pretty similar hmm. uh, in both systems. Wow, that's remarkable to think because again, you're 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 comparing two very different ecosystems in the yeah. long run, and and even before you get to the biodiversity of each, but. You know, when you start to talk about the effects of of these large predators on large herbivores, I can't help but start to think about these top-down ecosystem control ideas yeah. in ecology and the effects this is going to have on the forest. So, I mean, this is one of those concepts that's pretty well rooted in ecology. I remember learning about it as an undergrad and even hints of it in high school. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, why would a predator have an effect on the forest when really what it's eating is an animal, not a plant? Yeah, so there are two main ways that predators are thought to have like top-down impacts on ecosystems. The first is something called a numerical response. Hmm. So basically, predators are influencing the number of prey species that are in the environment, and by influencing the number of prey species, which are probably uh, you know oftentimes herbivores, that can then impact the abundance of the plant community that the herbivores are eating all the time. So fewer herbivores, less plants get eaten. Mm. The second mechanism is kind of the behavioral mechanism. So rather than predators just influencing the number of prey, they're also causing the prey to alter their behavior. For example, if there are a lot of predators around, then maybe a herbivore might decide to avoid foraging in an area where there's a high risk that it might encounter a predator and be killed by them. Or perhaps rather than avoiding that area altogether, the herbivores are only going to forage in that area 
during times of day when it's less likely that the predator is going to be around. So for example, if it's like a nocturnal predator, maybe they're not using that habit risky habitat at night and they're using another habitat somewhere else. Um, and so those are the kind of the two main mechanisms by, by which predators can impact like plant communities. Right on. And, and both have, you know, both hypotheses really have support, right? There's data that can you can kind of point at and go, yeah, there's something here, right? Yeah, for sure. And definitely on Isle Royale as well. So we know that during periods on Isle Royale when the number of wolves in the population has been pretty low, that's led to an increase. So they're, they're eating fewer moose. Mm. That's led to an increase in the number of moose on the island. And moose are really large animals. They weigh over 800 pounds Ooh. and they can eat up to 30 to 40 pounds of vegetation every day <laughs> at, at certain times of the year. And so they have to put on about a quarter to a third of their body weight during the summertime to be able to survive the winters. Yeah. And so when you have large increases in the number of moose on the island and they're eating that much vegetation, then that really starts to have an impact on, on what the forest and aquatic plants start to look like. So that's kind of the numerical mechanism that I was talking about. And then we also did research a few years ago um, with a PhD student called John Henderson, and he showed that moose were not in, were altering what they were eating when they were in a particular area in response to changes in the number of wolves on the island. And so when there weren't many wolves around on the island, moose tended to have like quite a diverse diet and they tended to seek out the rarest plants in that area. And so if you're not worried about being killed by a wolf, you take your time, you mm. figure out what you want to eat. So moose are having to balance like being able to get enough food with trying to avoid certain chemicals. So plant secondary metabolites that plants produce that when, when animals like moose ingest them, it can affect their ability to um, uh, assimilate nutrients from the plants that they're eating as well. Wow. So things like tannins bind with proteins and it kind of makes that protein unavailable. Um, and it can have a number of other physiological effects, including affecting the animal's ability to thermoregulate as well. And so it's thought that, um, you know, herbivores are kind of balancing the need to get enough food with trying to avoid eating too many of these chemicals. And so we think that's why they have this diverse diet so they don't consume too much of any particular chemical. But we also found that when wolves became more abundant, moose tended to just eat more conifers, even if they weren't very rare. Specifically, they were eating a lot of balsam fir. So in a sense, those changes in wolf abundance were altering how fussy moose were as, as eaters. So we think that they were just trying to get like they'd switch from trying to minimize these plant secondary metabolites that they were ingesting to just trying to get more volumes because they perhaps didn't want to be in an area wow. for as you know, they wanted to fill their their room in as fast as they could. Um, and then we built some simulations to try and assess the consequences of moose changing their behavior in response to wolves. Um, and that that analysis had some really interesting insights. Basically, if moose go for the strategy of seeking out these really rare plants and don't change their behavior, what tends to happen is those rare plants stay re really rare in the environment. And then you get a really overabundant po population of these other plants. Whereas if they're changing their behavior in response to wolves and then and the number of moose is changing in response to wolves, 
it tended to lead to to multiple plant species persisting at relatively high densities. So in a sense, the response of moose to changes in wolf predation risk were basically having a stabilizing effect on the ecosystem as well. We've also conducted some more research recently that's shown that it's not just wolves impacting moose abundance and moose behavior. We just had a a master's student called Jasmine who um, graduated earlier this summer. She did some work looking at like the chemistry, the like the nitrogen and the carbon content in balsam fir and how that had changed over time. And um, balsam fir is thought to be a species that's going to be adversely impacted by climate change in parts of the area that we're in. Mm we were wondering like you know what effect does moose browsing versus climate have on on like the carbon and nitrogen concentration in these plants and we found that because moose were eating so much balsam fir it had a really strong impact so plants were basically storing less carbon and had higher nitrogen concentrations as the number of moose on the island was increasing and so and those changes in moose abundance can be changed traced back to changes in wolf abundance so wolves were essentially altering like the molecular level what was in the plants themselves um and it goes even further than that please let's go (laughs) Um, but cut me off if i'm talking no 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 just Um, let us have it (laughs) and so moose don't just eat plants in the forest they also eat aquatic plants Mm. as well especially in the summertime and beaver are another species that wolves prey on that also obviously eat plants or cut trees in the forest and also eat aquatic plants as well and so as the number of wolves changed on the island we've seen big changes in the number of beavers on the island so when wolves were really rare we saw a big increase in beaver as wolf numbers recovered see a decline in beaver and obviously beaver are ecosystem engineers and have really big impacts on on the landscape and aquatic plants and those changes in moose and beaver abundance also uh, seem to have impacted the abundance of aquatic plants like water shield Mm. which kind of uh, lives in mostly shallow waters as well and so we see these changes in moose and beaver abundance also kind of like inversely correlated with changes in the the abundance of um, these aquatic plants as well. So even without putting their little paws in the water, (laughs) wolves are having impacts on aquatic landscapes as well because of those impacts that they're having on the herbivores. Wow. That, I mean, that's so wild. You listen to this stuff in ecology classes, you hear these stories, they're interesting ecological stories, and then you hear about where this research is going and it just gets more complicated. And the fact that wolves are impacting, albeit indirectly plant chemistry to me is such an interesting extra layer to add to this story because of course, plants are defending themselves the only way they can (laughs) as being mostly sessile organisms and the abundance of their immediate quote unquote predator an herbivore is, is obviously going to impact that. So that to me is just such an extra layer to add to the importance of having large predators in a system. Well, I will point out that we only just, so it was like literally a few months ago and it hasn't been like published in a journal or anything. I had that finding about changes in the nitrogen and carbon content, but hopefully we'll get that published soon. 
And we know that those changes have happened in the plants and ha that it's really strongly, like about 60% of the variation was linked to, wow. to changes in moose abundance and, um, and basically nothing at all related to climate. So yeah. it seems like moose are having a, a just swamping any effects of changes in climate on those, on those plants. Um, but what we don't know right now, and the question we're trying to answer right now is what does that increase in nitrogen and what does that decline in carbon mean? And so most, uh, I'm, I'm not a plant chemist. Sure, I've spent sure. most of my life studying animals. <laughs> um, so forgive me if I, I get things a little wrong, but no worries. Um, I think most defensive uh chemicals can either be carbon or nitrogen based sure and so we're trying to now do some more chemical analysis to try and figure out okay is that increase in nitrogen and carbon is that because they're not growing as they normally would and so they're trying to store nitrogen to be able to grow like during a, another period or are they um we've just done some test samples to look to see whether that increase in nitrogen could be related to like an increased production of um, alkaloids, which are nitrogen based, because those are, are really important plant defensive chemicals. So we're trying to figure out exactly what that is, is it changes in rates of photosynthesis in the plant and carbon storage and things like that? Or is it changes in defensive chemistry? And early results look like it may be alkaloids, but we've still got a long way to go. It's only like literally <laughs> last week that um one of the students in our lab ran the first few samples and found wow. traces of what what are alkaloids but um yeah I, I guess with when it comes to plant chemistry a lot of the the molecules that are in there we just don't know what they are they don't yeah. have names so it's um yeah I've learned a lot <laughs> but there's still a lot a lot more that I don't know but you know I I, I found that result particularly exciting because, well, exciting or interesting because yeah. of the changes in um, not only the nitrogen, but also the carbon as well. So the plants had less carbon in them. And so that potentially when you're thinking about climate change, right. you know, how is that impacted by, you know, how, how are moose impacting like carbon sequestration rates and things like that as well, if they're not only impacting the abundance of plants, but also like how much carbon they're taking in as well. Right. I mean, it's amazing to think of you went in testing a handful of, of parameters, right? And from those interesting findings, now you've opened up a whole new suite of questions that now you're talking to plant chemists, you're talking to climatologists, you're talking to atmosphere, you know, it just yeah. goes to show you how like this idea of, of like, well, why are we studying that? Well, you never know what the heck is going to come from scientific inquiry? And now you get to collaborate and learn so much more about the green world <laughs> on top of all the cool stuff you're finding about the animals. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's like the, the never ending rabbit hole that you, you <laughs> keep going down and down. But no, I, I mean, I realized a long time ago that if you're really interested in, in animals, you have to study the plants as well, because it's so important for determining habitat and where they can ah can exist even if it's like a predator the habitat's important and that's mostly shaped by plants so music to my yeah. ears <laughs> so i yeah i i don't know a whole lot about plants so i feel like i've definitely got um yeah i'm 
pushing out of my comfort zone, but sure. it's super cool and interesting. And like you say, really great to work with new new collaborators that are, um, you know, ex- more experts in uh, plant chemistry and genetics and things like that as well. Yeah. And it, it, it too, it's like for those listening that are like, well, I'm more interested in this side of things. How does that even compare? Well, here you go. Here's a million different options now to have a piece of this interesting puzzle, uh, you know, contribute that is instead of, you know, maybe not all of us are set to work with wolves for the rest of our lives, but some people can be plant chemists or something like that. So yeah, find unique ways of contributing to bigger picture ideas, especially when it comes to like, here's a system where you could potentially make inferences about our atmospheric composition, potentially again, with plenty of more work to be done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very cool. And so, you know, when you start talking about this, it, it really underscores the importance of big predators in a system. And and unfortunately, like where I'm from in the northeast of the United States, like large predators have been largely hunted to exhaustion or extinction in many cases, local extinction. And, you know, we've seen the effects on the ecosystem because deer are poorly managed. Their their numbers are higher than they've ever been on this continent. What bigger impacts is that having beyond the obvious of deer browse is out of control? You know what I mean? It just the inquiries like this, little hints of data like this really open this door to what's happening out there as we remove predators from the landscape. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if Iowa Royal has told me anything, it's like everything is connected <laughs> and, and there there is a you know, I, I don't know that I want to say like a balance because stuff is always changing. Sure. It's never going to converge to a, you know, like it does in your mathematical models, but <laughs> everything is, is connected. Like you change one thing and you impact it and it can have really surprising effects that you just don't know until that, that kind of happens. So I, I think when we think about like the removal of predators like wolves from the landscape, um, not only does it impact like the, the abundance of things like deer, but we've also done research in Isle Royale showing that wolves are really important for keeping prey populations healthy, in air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so predators, as I kind of mentioned before, they tend to be strongly selective for like the old individuals, but they also tend to prey more on individuals that are in poor condition. Mm. And so there's research going on in Europe and, and all different parts of the world that are showing that wolves might be really important for controlling infectious diseases, mm. things like tuberculosis. Um, and on our Royal, we've shown that wolves selectively prey on moose that get things like arthritis. Wow. And so when you have more wolves around, they prey more on, on moose and they're selectively taking out these arthritic individuals um and so that that means that the the abundance of arthritic moose in the population starts to decline and so you have like a younger and healthier population and that's important uh i think you know because if we're thinking about like how to keep populations resilient you want young healthy individuals yeah. in that population so that they can respond to like a harsh winter you know, uh, and things like that as well, because, you know, older and sick individuals are going to not respond as well if you get these like severe weather events. And that's been shown in other systems, not necessarily on our Royal. But um, and I think the other thing is as well, um, not just from like a short term perspective that wolves are helping to keep moose populations healthy by removing, selectively removing this arthritic moose. 
arthritis is like partly determined by your genetics mm. and wolves were particularly preying on like young moose that developed arthritis at a young age mm. and so removing them from the population before they have a chance to breed and pass on their genes and so wolves might be having like a really important evolutionary uh, selective mm. influence in like an evolutionary sense on trying to maintain the health of, of prey populations and arthritis is also like linked to a bunch of other diseases as well. So if you have arthritis, you're more likely to have these other diseases. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, I don't think we know in a lot of these cases. But if they're taking out, out arthritic individuals, they might also be, you know, incidentally taking out individuals that are kind of predisposed to other diseases as well. Wow. So they might be kind of like having bigger health impacts than, than what we're currently aware of. Yeah, is my is what I suspect, but we've still, you know, that's another avenue, sure. another rabbit warren <laughs> that we need to go down. But yeah, but I love this though because the more angles you take, the more sort of uh, hooking points you have to to talk about this in a bigger context with the public. Because let's be honest, the public might not care about the abundance of rare plants on Isle Royal, but you know, maybe there's some trophy hunters out there that understand if they want the bigger, stronger trophies at the end of the season, hey, maybe predators are playing a role in that. You know, population dynamics, it's, it's important. And you, you really, if anything, doing this podcast has taught me, you got to meet people where they're at. You can't force them to see it just that one way that you see it. You kind of have to figure out which way they see it. And okay, well, maybe here's a, if we don't have data, fodder for a new question. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right you mentioned like meeting people where they're at i think one thing that's um really nice about the the work and the research that we do is uh in the summertime we have a lot of citizen scientists come out and help us collect data nice and so we get to work with like all kinds of people from you know people working in finance in new york city and people that run aquariums in the Midwest. And so you get to work with all of these different uh, people and, and learn how to try and explain what you're doing and why it's important to people of all different backgrounds. And so, cool. and it's really interesting to hear their stories and how they, they've perceived things that they've seen because it makes you think about things differently as well. Definitely. And obviously, you guys are getting either either by boat or by plane or something, right? You have to be able to get there. But throughout all of this, the curious question comes, you're on an island in the Great Lakes. It's cold. It's deep. It's not easy to get to. How are moose and wolves getting there? Because going back to population health, you know, two wolves got there and made a bunch of babies. And all we're seeing is the inbred babies of those wolves. Same goes for the moose, right? There's got to be some exchange with the mainland populations. Yes. And... No. Oh. So I think from the evidence that's available, there was a recent study assessing like the genetics of the, the whole genome of several moose from Isle Royale and from mainland Minnesota and a few other places in the US. And based on their analysis and simulations, um, this is uh, people from the university uh, that were collaborating from the University of California, um, UCLA, sorry. Um, and they've their the best evidence that they've got su suggests that the, the moose population was founded by just you know a very small number of individuals, and wow. they've been less than like one migrant per per generation. So for moose, it'd be really difficult to get out to the island. Huh. They're exceptional swimmers, but it's fifteen miles, Ooh, yeah. which is you know you've really got to be driven to try and get out there. So people have definitely seen moose swimming in the water. That's 
around the the islands in uh, off the north shore uh, of the shore of Canada and Isle Royale as well. But uh, yeah, I think there's been very few crossings of moose between the two. And as a consequence of that, the moose population is pretty inbred. It has low levels of genetic mm. diversity compared to populations on the mainland. And so another thing that we're trying to figure <laughs> out right now is like, what are the consequences of that, um, those low levels of genetic diversity and those higher levels of inbreeding? So for moose, I think the population increased really rapidly mm -hmm. um, because there were no predators when they first arrived and they weren't really hunted extensively. And so I think their numbers increased very rapidly. And so I think the rate of inbreeding there has been very slow over time mm. compared to, say, in the wolf population. And for the wolf population, wolves came across an ice bridge that connected the island to the mainland in the 1950s. Nice. And um, for a long time, it was thought that the kind of there wasn't much movement between the two, but kind of an, again, genetic analysis suggests that the population has got lower, had lower diversity than the mainland, but not as bad as you would expect if it had been completely isolated and. We've documented uh, at least a couple of incidences of wolves traveling between the, the island and the mainland. So, yeah, wolves don't mind. They walk long distances all of the time and they don't mind walking on ice. Hmm. Um, and they'll even walk out on very thin ice. Um, and sometimes they fall through. Um, but luckily they have claws to be able to get back out again. Um, for moose, it's a lot more difficult. So moose obviously have hooves. Yeah. So and and they're big animals with a lot of pressure on those little, you know, they're walking on their tippy toes, yeah. and so the chances that they're going to go through or the chances that they're going to slip are, are a lot higher. And we've seen that. And if they fall on the ice, you know, they could break their pelvis, and then that's Yikes. it. You're not going to get up again as well. So huh. they try and avoid walking on on ice as much as they can, really. Fascinating. I mean, the, the behavioral differences alone are worth a lot of investigation, <laughs> but wow. I, I mean, to think all of this complexity, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, Yellowstone was far more complex, but still, it, it just goes to show you that even an island that's really, geologically speaking, not that old, uh, has so much to offer an ecologist that I would assume like you're going to stick with the system for a, a while at least in your career, and you would need to clone yourself repeatedly to keep up with all of the questions you could possibly conjure up from just watching these two organisms interact. Yep. Well, my colleague Rolf Peterson has been studying the ecosystem since the early 1970s, wow. and uh, yeah, he hasn't gotten fed up or run out of ideas yet either. <laughs> so yeah, I think it is a, it's a, um, yeah, it's a challenging place to work, um, but it's it's a really interesting and rewarding place too. Yeah, yeah. What's the black fly situation like up there? I can imagine it's certain times pretty rough. Yeah, we <laughs> try and get the bulk of our field work done in kind of early May and, and in May and June. That's partly because there's less insects, so it's a bit more pleasant, but it's also um, a lot easier to kind of hike around off trail and you're mm. much more likely to find things before all the green vegetation, spring vegetation grows up as well. And it's just, yeah, you're, you're doing all of your work hiking on either tiny trails or off trails. So Yeah, it must be an absolutely spectacular place to be as a biologist, though. I mean, there's got to be moments where you're out there you know, collecting data just going, I can't believe I'm here right now. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it is. It's yeah, it certainly feel very privileged to to be able to get to work in a place like that. Yeah, it I mean every place that I've worked has its own something that pulls you in like before I did my PhD I'd mostly studied wildlife in uh countries in Central America um and places like that so i spent more time working in the tropics than i had in <laughs> minus 10 <laughs> three foot snow conditions yeah. but yeah and so yeah the number of species in those systems is just you know unfathomable really um compared to, to Iowa. but yeah they both have their charms phenomenal well dr hoy I, I we're privileged to get to hear about this so thank you so much for your time and for telling us these stories if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of the work coming out of your lab and, of course, your colleagues as well, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more? Yeah, so we have a website, um, which I should know what the address is. That's okay. I will put it in the show notes. You don't even have to remember okay. it. Um, IsleRoyalWolf.org. Nice. Um, and we also have a Facebook and Instagram page, The Wolves and Moose of Isle Royal. And so we usually share updates whenever we have new papers that have come out and things like that. Nice. Well, I will put up links, like I said, in the show notes for all of those so people can find them easily. But Dr. Hoy, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us about this. It's a real honor. And uh, keep up the incredible work you're doing. Thank you very much. And I just want to clarify, like, the... The, the research that I've been talking about is like the result of not just me, but my amazing collaborators, all of our fantastic students, um, and also like a really large team of volunteers that come out and they come out to the island and work incredibly hard for us as well. So yeah, it really is like a huge collaboration and, and team effort. Of course. And of course big, big round of applause and thank you goes out to everyone involved as well. I mean, it really does take a village to do science of this magnitude. So thanks to everyone for chipping in. Thank you. Of course. Well, in the meantime, hang in there and keep it up. <laughs> you too. Take care. Cheers. Bye. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Dr. Hoy for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, please check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com to find out more about all of the topics we discussed today. The links are there. Just go click on them. But yeah, predators. We can't have healthy ecosystems without healthy predator populations. If you're enjoying conversations like this, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, consider supporting it. There are a lot of great ways to support indefensive plants. For instance, you can pick up some of our customizable merch, stickers, or a copy of my book. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For a little bit each month, you get a bunch of kickbacks, but you're helping keep the show up and running. And I thank everyone that's kicked in thus far. It truly means the world, and I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.